Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. Jonathan Brisby was killed today while helping with the plan. It is four years since our departure from Nim, and our world is changing. We cannot stay here much longer. Jonathan was a dear friend. I am lost in knowing how to help his widow. She knows nothing of us or the plan. Perhaps best that I do nothing at present. I shall miss him. Jonathan, wherever you are, your thoughts must comfort her tonight. She'll be waiting, and you will not return. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 76, The Secret of Nim. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. I hope that you're all staying safe and well. Um, Obviously these are especially difficult times that we're all living in right now, um, 
But a massive thank you once again for joining me. If this is not your first time on listening to Verbal Diorama, if it is your first time, hello. This is episode two of Animation Season 2021. Um, This season is going to be running through January and February of this year and will showcase 10 animated movies from different studios, different countries and different animation styles. The last episode was on Pixar's Coco and we're going to be curveballing back to 1982 Back to the great Don Bluth. Now, this is not the first time I featured a Don Bluth movie. The first and last time was episode one, which was on Titan AE. Um, And this is undoubtedly Bluth's most acclaimed and well-known film, as well as Nightmare Fuel for children in the 80s. And I mean, this is the same guy who did An American Tale and The Land Before Time, as well as movies like Anastasia. So we know he's kind of dabbled with dark stories before, but this is his most dark, kind of twisted, beautiful fairy tale uh, of empowerment and friendship and humanity's desire to literally plough ahead uh, with its own desires, regardless of what that means to animals. Um, There's a lot of underlying themes and really interesting stories about this movie that I really want to talk about. So, without further ado, here's the trailer for The Secret of Nim. Aurora and Don Bluth Productions present a classic adventure in motion picture entertainment. I must tell you about Nim. Look there. It's a fantasy with wizards and villains. And heroes. I ain't scared of nothing. I'm not even afraid of the great owl. Will you hush up? Come on! It's an odyssey to another world. A world of fantasy and enchantment. To what you see and hear, you must swear absolute secrecy. It's the most beautiful sight I've ever seen. Do you like me? Of course I like you. It's a story of friendship. I mean, you don't think I'm clumsy or anything. I just need a few pointers to polish my style. I told you you'd love flying. I don't know how I let you talk me into this. It's a classic story of courage. Why have you come? And a world of danger. If I had actually been near a cat, I'd be sneezing my brains out. I'm allergic to hay. Excuse me, pardon me. Where courage is rewarded. Oh, thank you. A motion picture for everyone to share. Oh, the poor turkey fell down. I'm I'm not a turkey. Big no, Discover the secret of Nim and rediscover the child in us all. Mrs. Brisby, a widowed mouse, lives in a cinder block with her children on the Fitzgibbon farm. She's preparing to move her family out of the field they live in as ploughing time approaches. However, her son Timothy has fallen ill and moving him could prove fatal. 
Mrs Brisby visits the Great Owl, a wise creature who advises her to visit a mysterious group of rats who live beneath a rosebush. Upon visiting the rats, Brisby meets Nicodemus, the wise and mystical leader of the rats. While there, she learns that her late husband Jonathan, along with the rats, was part of a series of experiments at a place known only as Nim. The experiments performed on the mice and rats there boosted their intelligence, allowing them to read without being taught and to understand things such as complex mechanics and electricity. Because of her husband's prior relationship with the rats, they agreed to help Mrs Brisby move her home out of the path of the plough. However, the evil Jenna and his unwilling accomplice Sullivan plot to kill Nicodemus during the move so Jenna can assume leadership of the rats. Let's quickly go through the cast of this movie. So we have Elizabeth Hartman as Mrs Brisby, Hermione Baddeley as Auntie Shrew, John Carradine as the Great Owl, Dom DeLuise as Jeremy, and this is the first of five collaborations between Don Bluth and Dom DeLuise, Derek Jacobi as Nicodemus, Arthur Mallet as Mr Ages, Peter Strauss as Justin and Paul Shinar as Jenna. It also features Shannon Doherty as Teresa Brisby and Will Wheaton as Martin Brisby. Uh, this is both of those actors' movie debuts. Uh, so they were quite incredibly young when they did this movie. So the story adaptation was by Don Bluth, John Pomeroy, Gary Goldman and Will Finn. It was based on Mrs Frisby and the Rats of Nim by Robert C. O'Brien and it was directed by Don Bluth. So let's start with some Don Bluth history. So Bluth worked at Walt Disney Animation Studios between 1955 to 1957, where he worked uncredited as assistant animator on Sleeping Beauty. He left Disney to do missionary work in Argentina before returning to college and gaining a degree in English literature. Uh, also during that time, he worked uncredited as assistant animator on Sword in the Stone for Disney in 1963. He then joined Filmation in 1967 and then returned to Disney full-time in 1971 where he worked on character animation on Robin Hood, titles animation for Escape to Witch Mountain and he was an animator on The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. He became directing animator for The Rescuers and Pete's Dragon and drew a few uncredited scenes for The Fox and the Hound before leaving Disney during its production in 1979. And this was mainly because... He was very disheartened at the way Disney was being run. Uh, he didn't agree with the way Disney was being run during that time. He felt that there were too many cost-cutting measures uh, going on at Disney. And quite a lot of the, his fellow animators at Disney agreed. So eventually he and 11 of those fellow Disney animators, including Gary Goldman and John Pomeroy, left Disney to start Don Bluth Productions. And Don Bluth was passionate about reviving the classical animation style that Disney was known for from its golden age early classics. The likes of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella. And he really felt that these cost-cutting measures that Disney were using during the 60s and 70s, that he was really concerned for Disney's future. Because what you've got to remember is Disney at that time, in the late 70s and early 80s, was at a really kind of precarious point in its history, it wasn't the all-encompassing media behemoth that it is nowadays. Um, it was really struggling. And a lot of its animated productions were struggling. But mainly Don Bluth felt that creativity was being stifled, um, that there was too much bureaucracy and that artistic value was reduced. And he felt that there was literally no scope to grow, that basically they had no choice but to leave and start their own production company. And Don Bluth Productions, their first attempt was a 1979 short entitled Banjo the Woodpile Cat. It was produced on a shooting budget and it was made in Bluth's garage. 
This had started as a side project while Bluth still worked at Disney and took four years to make, but this led to more work on the live-action film Xanadu. Uh, They ended up moving to a two-storey, 5,500-square-foot production studio in Studio City, California, a few months later. And they always had their sights on feature-length animation because this was the bread and butter of these guys. This is what they knew. And the rights to the book, Mrs Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, had actually been offered to Disney in 1972. But it was turned down by animation director Wolfgang Reitherman because they already had a mouse. His name was Mickey. Uh, They'd already done a mouse movie. That was called The Rescuers. And so they kind of felt that Mrs Frisbee and the Rats of Nim wasn't really disney Artist and story writer Ken Anderson had enjoyed the book and gave it to Don Bluth to read. And he ended up passing it around the rest of the staff at Don Bluth Productions, who also loved it. Former Disney executive James L. Stewart had left Disney at this point. There's a lot of leaving Disney (laughs) around this time. And he'd started uh, Aurora Productions. And after much discussion between Don Bluth and Aurora... Aurora acquired the film rights to Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim and offered Don Bluth Productions a $5.7 million budget and 30 months to complete the film. Both of which were relatively tight for an animated feature at the time. But ultimately, Don Bluth Productions agreed and production started in January 1980 and continued through to June 1982. And this was with the explicit idea to return animation to its golden age, focusing on good characters, a strong story and pushing the boundaries of animation that to the likes that Walt Disney himself actually wanted to do. And Mrs Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, and I'm going to come back because obviously I'm calling it Mrs Frisbee um, and it's Brisbee in the movie and there is a reason for that. But that novel was written by Robert C. O'Brien. It was published in 1971 and it was the winner of the 1972 Newbery Medal, which is an award given to the most distinguished contribution to American literature for children. And this novel was actually based on a real study of rat and mice population dynamics by John B. Calhoun at the National Institute for Mental Health, which is NIM. This is the actual NIM. <laughs> and Calhoun devised a series of rodent villages that he would manipulate in various ways. So the rodent's behaviour was monitored to see how things like changes in population density affected their interactions with each other. Calhoun monitored and controlled food, water and the number of available sexual partners. In these densely populated areas, the rodents would actually start to kill each other. And Calhoun claimed that these effects were a model for potential human futures if the world becomes too overpopulated and things like food and water become scarce. The overcrowded rodents were given the name behavioural sink, whereas the passive rodents who withdrew from social interaction became known as the beautiful ones. And unlike most adaptations, which tend to kind of have a little bit of artistic license, the book and the movie are actually remarkably similar to each other. The only main difference really is the fact that the film contains supernatural elements, such as the amulet, which grants the wearer power when they're courageous, and obviously Nicodemus himself being a magician to add more mystery to the backstory of the rats, that essentially, you know, they were experimented on and tortured by humans, and from it have gained intelligence and self-consciousness, and potentially also magic as well, because we assume that Nicodemus wasn't a magic rat before he was experimented on, Um, So the only thing that we can presume is that he became a magician 
after being experimented on. But I want to talk about the mice and the rats a little bit later because I think there's a lot of questions about what actually happened at NIM and why it was happening. And this movie does go incredibly deep into some of these topics that kind of on the surface you don't see. It's only really when you think about it that you realise how dark this movie actually is. But I want to talk about the animation in this movie because obviously this is a movie from 1982. So this movie is almost 40 years old. And the animation is honestly some of the most stunning traditional animation that I think has ever been done. And and I'm kind of talking about comparing it to the Disney classics as well, because it doesn't really look like anything else. And I think that's kind of a mix of a couple of things. They used a lot of the traditional way that Walt Disney used to want his animators to work. But they also incorporated modern technology as well. And it's quite seamless and it's absolutely gorgeous. When I'm talking about traditional, I'm talking about the use of the multiplane camera, and that is used to show depth. The last example of Disney using a multiplane camera was on The Little Mermaid, uh, which is obviously from 1989, but it actually had to be done at another studio because Disney's multiplane cameras were not operational. Only three of these original multiplane cameras still survive. There's one at the Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, California, one at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, which I have been to, uh, and one in the Art of Disney Animation attraction at Walt Disney Studios Park in Disneyland Paris. Um, and they're actually set up with all of the different layers, uh, all of the different animation cells in. And it's absolutely gorgeous uh, and really interesting how they actually did animate things at that time. So six months were devoted to creating design specifications for these multiplane cameras, because they didn't exist. They had to be built. And it took another 14 months to build and test them because everything that the Secret of NIM actually required needed to be built. There was nothing available. And this was including the ability to shoot backlit art in an anamorphic format, which I'm going to come to the backlighting in a little bit. Um, so other techniques used on the Secret of NIM include rotoscoping and the use of multiple colour palettes depending on the environment and the lighting. So Mrs Brisby had 46 different lighting situations, so there were 46 different colour palettes used on her. Um, backlighting, as I said, where animated mats are shot with light shining through colour gels, they were the things that kind of made dewdrop sparkle and the amulet glow and the chain glimmer and fires burn and all of this kind of different artificial lighting, as well as the eyes. So when I talk about the eyes on the great owl and Nicodemus, they don't have any pupils. It's just this bright yellow glow. And it's it kind of stares into your soul a little bit. Um, and it's an image that you will never forget. And it's come from this movie. There is no other movie that does it like this. To my knowledge, let me know if there is a movie that looks and, and treats its animation like this. Uh, and I'm talking about like traditional hand-drawn animation as well. Because obviously there is no CGI in this movie at all. It is all hand-drawn. It's all of these tricks of the trade that Don Bluth picked up from working at Disney. I mean, they did use shortcuts because obviously they were time constrained as well. So they did photograph the three-dimensional model sets and that was to transfer it to the animation as well as they Xeroxed individual cells, which is actually a trick that was used by Disney to save money during the Bronze Age of Disney. But unlike Disney, the cells were linked by hand to eliminate lines. It's one of the common complaints of Bronze Age Disney that it looks a little bit cheap in comparison to some of their earlier work. And that was mainly because a lot of the cells were just copied and a lot of the sequences were reused on multiple films. 
what Don Bluth did was he used the traditional way that Disney used to do it. He used modern ways of backlighting as well as using these time-saving measures as well all together and it just makes something that looks really unique because I said this was a time-constrained project and the final six months was especially arduous and for the first time ever the crew were offered a cut of the film's profits. Producer Gary Goldman recalled work in 110-hour weeks during these final months Uh, 100 in-house Bluth staff worked on the film with a further 45 people tasked with labour-intensive cell painting. So this really was an especially big achievement for Don Bluth Productions at the time. Um, And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to cover The Secret of Nim because it's a simple story, it's really well told and it looks good. And that's kind of really what animation is all about. Um, it's about having a story that can cross the generations because this story can cross generations. Again, I've always said animation is not a medium that's just for children. And The Secret of Nim proves that more than pretty much anything, I think, that this is a movie that you could quite easily watch with a six-year-old and a teenager and an adult and they will all get something from it. And obviously... When we're talking about Disney, Disney feature a lot of anthropomorphic animals. So the whole anthropomorphic animals thing, I mean, I talked about Robin Hood a little while ago. They are anthropomorphic foxes. So the use of anthropomorphic animals in animation is not new. Uh, Disney's used them. DreamWorks have used them. (laughs) Pixar's used them. So this is a real thing. And what I found really fascinating about The Secret of Nim is kind of the backstory of how these smart rats and mice came to be and the fact that they can pass on their shared intelligence to other animals. Um, So we know that these mice and rats were experimented on in a laboratory in NIM, which is the National Institute for Mental Health. We know that they were injected with something. Um, And we know that they've learned to talk, they've learned to read, They've learned to make themselves clothing. They've learned to make themselves weapons. They've learned how to source electricity. But the most interesting part of it is that you would expect the rats of Nim to know how to talk and read. But can Mrs. Brisby, Auntie Shrew and Jeremy talk because they've been taught to? Because Mrs. Brisby mentions that Jonathan taught her to read, but her children are better at it. So this means that whatever they were injecting Jonathan with at Nim is genetically being passed down to his children. But how do the rest of the animals know how to talk and read? (laughs) I don't know. But ultimately, and in all seriousness, it all kind of comes back to this really awful story of animal cruelty and testing on animals and the... It's a cautionary tale of of what we're actually doing to the world. If we mess with the world, then it will mess with us. You know, and it's quite possible that the rats of them want to establish their own society. Could it be that in the future that the rats of Nim could overtake us as the dominant species on the planet? And I don't think this is anything that John B. Calhoun projected in his research, But I think they're important questions to ask about the rats of Nim. 
How does Mrs. Brisby know how to talk and read? <laughs> how does Jeremy? Because she hadn't met Jeremy at that point. So how did Jeremy know how to talk? So many questions. Um, as I said, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of stop asking myself questions because I feel like I'm going down a bit of a dark hole. As I said, the story itself is actually quite simple. It's essentially a family that needs to move, but the youngest child is sick. And that in itself gives you a reason to empathise with Mrs. Brisby and the Brisby family. Because if you need to move, but your child is sick, then you have to do something about that. And it's this very simple story attached to these striking and often nightmarish visuals that really give this movie kind of its its heart and its peril and consequence. More so than your average animated movie. Because in human terms, a farmer ploughing his field isn't a big deal. But if you're a mouse and you live in that field, it all of a sudden becomes an apocalyptic event. Um, And Mrs. Brisby really is kind of at the heart of this movie. She has no choice but to move her family. She does what a mother needs to do. But she's repeatedly told that she can't do it, that it's impossible, that she's crazy to try, that it's too dangerous. But she just kind of throws herself wholeheartedly into the situation. Um, And I think that just kind of proves the age-old mantra that women get stuff done. Because Mrs. Brisby knows what she needs to do. And the scope of what she has to do for a mouse, let's not forget she is a mouse, is actually quite gigantic. You know, she takes down a tractor. She escapes from a birdcage. And she literally raises her home from the mud. Mrs. Brisby is a superhero. <laughs> she is like Marvel level superhero. Golden Globe winner and Oscar nominee Elizabeth Hartman, uh, who voiced Mrs. Brisby, passed away several years after this. This was her final role before retiring from acting at age 38. And although Mrs. Brisby has never had a first name, like she's never been granted a first name officially, fans of the movie have actually nicknamed Mrs. Brisby Elizabeth. Um, in honour of Elizabeth Hartman. Um, Elizabeth Hartman suffered from mental health issues and she committed suicide uh, in 1987 and she was just 43 years old. So Elizabeth Hartman was really struggling. Um, And I think it's a really nice gesture that Mrs. Brisby can have a name, that she's unofficially become Elizabeth Brisby after Hartman, which I think is really nice. And and quite a lot of this cast, actually, have since passed away. There's only a handful of people who are still alive. So it really feels like a bit of a time capsule, this movie, to the voice talent that has, is sadly no longer with us, including Elizabeth Hartman, who's truly brilliant in this movie. Um, like, she brings this real strength and innocence to Mrs. Brisby. And as I mentioned, the original novel named Mrs. Frisby and not Mrs. Brisby. And there's a really obvious reason for this change, and that is Frisbees. See, you'll remember the little plastic discs that you throw around and there's a sport named after it and all of that. So to avoid legal complications with Whammo, the company who make Frisbees, they actually were asked, could the production use the name Frisbee? Obviously spelled F-R-I-S-B-Y and not F-R-I-S-B-E-E. And uh, Whammo refused that request and so the decision was made to change the names from frisbee to brisbee uh the problem was that all the voice actors had long since recorded their lines as frisbee and it wasn't feasible to bring them back to re-record so the sound editors actually took instances of when the actors used a bruh 
sounds with BR sound, and carefully and by hand sliced the br onto instances of fr, so fr, on these magnetic dialogue tracks. And if you listen carefully, you can sometimes hear inconsistencies between versions of Brisby. Sometimes you can kind of hear a bit of an F instead of a B. Um, some instances of the animation also had to be changed from Frisbee to Brisby. It's quite easy, though, to change an F to a B on screen. But if you look at some scenes, especially the scenes where Nicodemus is writing his eulogy of Jonathan Brisby, you can tell uh, if you look at the first letter closely enough that it was clearly an F that's been changed to a B. Don Bluth is well known for his stories of emigrating. I mean, if you think of things like An American Tale, if you think of Anastasia, if you think of The Land Before Time, it, it's all characters going from one place to another place. And so The Secret of Nim is kind of no different, really. He's also known for his darker themes and character deaths as well. He's not afraid to kill people. And really, it's these kind of dark themes are the sort of things that we expect from the likes of Laika or Studio Ghibli nowadays. And you know how much of a big fan I am of those two studios. The Secret of Nim also has a cast of well-known names to the theatre and arts rather than Hollywood movie stars, the sort of actors that voice animation today. So in this movie, you have the likes of Sir Derek Jacobi, who's Shakespearean stage actor, as uh, Nicodemus and Hermione Baddeley. She is most well known as the housekeeper in Mary Poppins, and she plays Auntie Shrew. And obviously the most recognisable names to me are Shannon Doherty and Will Wheaton, but that probably says a lot about the stuff I grew up watching. The Secret of Nim had a modest box office gross, but then an industry-wide animator strike actually led to Don Bluth Productions filing for bankruptcy in 1982. In 1983, Don Bluth started the Bluth Group and they created the arcade games, Dragon's Lair and Space Age. And then the arcade business crashed and Bluth Group filed for bankruptcy. But Don Bluth is nothing if not a trier. And in 1985, Don Bluth, John Pomeroy and Gary Goldman established Sullivan Bluth Studios with businessman Morris Sullivan. And this was when a collaboration with Steven Spielberg, which is a link to Gremlins uh, and Amblin Entertainment, secured the animated movie An American Tale and The Land Before Time before that partnership also went south. You can hear more of what happened to Don Bluth a few years later in the year 2000 by listening to episode one, Titan AE, where I kind of go into more unfortunate occurrences for Don Bluth. But ultimately, Don Bluth is such an established name. Everyone of my age grew up watching Don Bluth movies. His style of animation is so unique. And this kind of carries from The Secret of Nim all the way through to Titan AE. And obviously Titan AE is another very interesting story. But if you are interested in hearing more about that, listen to episode one. I'll be completely honest. I think my episodes are a bit better now than they were in episode one when I started. Um, so it's probably sounds a bit weird. <laughs> but um, but if you are interested in hearing more about what happened to Don Bluth, um, then listen to episode one. Um, so moving on to the obligatory Keanu reference. So this is a part of each episode where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And God, this is hard. <laughs> really hard. I've really struggled with this. And the closest obligatory Keanu reference I've found is online. There was a fan recasting of The Secret of Nim. And this is really bad, but it's my only option. With Keanu voicing Jonathan Brisby. And then it kind of made sense because it's a name starting with John. 
And Keanu loves to star in movies as Johnny or John or Jonathan. So clearly he's a shoo-in. Um, obviously the character's dead. But <laughs> so I don't think Keanu would have a massive part in this uh, in this fan cast movie. But that's all I'm going to find. So I'm going with it. One thing I did want to highlight was the score. So this is the great Jerry Goldsmith. He wrote the score and it was performed by the National Philharmonic Orchestra. This was his first animated feature score. Uh, You'll remember him from two episodes ago because he also scored Gremlins. So that's the second reference to Gremlins in this episode, as well as The Mummy, which I've also done an episode on, which is the best movie ever made. When it came to marketing The Secret of Nim, so the first thing that I wanted to mention is there's a beautiful poster for The Secret of Nim, which is no longer used. (laughs) So the DVD cover for this movie looks like a happy, bright, cheery Disney movie. Uh, But the original theatrical poster was made by artist Tim Hildebrandt. He worked on it for almost two weeks. It's a beautiful poster, truly gorgeous. But the problem with this movie, and this is something that happens quite a lot on movies featured on this podcast, was that the distributor, which was MGM UA Entertainment Company, they didn't really understand this movie. They had very little faith in this movie. And this is usually reserved for Universal on this podcast. Uh, however, this isn't Universal for a change. And subsequently, there was hardly any promotion for The Secret of Nim, And Aurora had to finance their own advertising campaign. Um, so initially, it was supposed to open in a thousand cinemas in the US. But it opened in a limited release of 100 cinemas in America. It also opened the week after The Thing, um, which is episode 48, by the way, as well as Blade Runner. And E.T. was still at number one in the charts at that time. So The Secret of Nim really, really struggled. Uh, It scraped in at number 15 in its opening week after a 2nd of July 1982 release. It would rise up to number 13 the following week. And by its fourth week, it was up 3.1% on the previous week. But the movie wouldn't actually break even until it was released on home video format, uh, where it was released on, get this, Super 8, VHS, Betamax, CED Video Disc, Video 8 and Laserdisc. Um, Now, when I was growing up, we only had VHS in our house. But I obviously know what a Super 8 is. I know what a Betamax is. I know what a Laserdisc is. And I know what a video disc is. I don't even know what video 8 is. So if someone would like to let me know, because I can't be bothered to research it, let me know what a video 8 is. So (laughs) I'm sure someone will. Uh, Andy from Geek Salad probably will. Um, (laughs) So it was released on all these formats in 1983. Uh, It was released on November 17th, 1998 on DVD. And it was released on the 29th of March, 2011 on Blu-ray. Like I said, I have it on DVD and it's the cheeriest, happiest, most beautifully colourful and upbeat cover for any DVD that I've ever got. Uh, It completely belies its dark, twisted fairy tale fantasy. But I mean, if that gets kids watching it, then I mean, that's kind of all good. But um, but still, uh, so the movie really struggled. The finished movie cost $6.385 million. And because it cost more than they actually originally were given, several key production management, including Don Bluth, Gary Goldman, John Pomeroy, and executives at Aurora had to remortgage their homes to gather an extra $700,000 to complete the film. Uh, it would go on to make $14.67 million worldwide. But as I said, it didn't stop Don Bluth Productions filing for bankruptcy, which is disappointing. 
But obviously, they did go on to more interesting things with the likes of American Tale and The Land Before Time. Um, whether they were bigger and better things, I mean, they're different things. That's all I'll say. They're different. I'm being diplomatic. They're different things. Sequels-wise, there was a sequel to this movie. It was a direct-to-video sequel called The Secret of Nim 2, Timmy to the Rescue. Uh, it was released in December 1998 and was made without Don Bluth's involvement and has kind of been critically panned, whereas The Secret of Nim has is overwhelmingly critically praised. A live-action remake was announced by Paramount Pictures in 2009, but nothing came of that. And in 2015, MGM reacquired the rights to Mrs Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, and they announced a CGI live-action hybrid, sort of in the realm of the Smurfs or that Alvin and the Chipmunks movie, and they wanted to call that the Rats of Nim. And the Russo brothers are executive producers through their Agbo production company and their partnership with MGM. This movie is planned to be James Madigan's directorial debut. Right, let's move over to social media thoughts. So, a new feature for episodes now is Patreon thoughts. So, patrons used to get the majority of episodes two days early, but they now get them six days early. I want to give them an opportunity to not only give their thoughts, but also their podcast, if they have one, I'll give it a bit of a plug, as well as any episodes that they may have done on that subject. So, we have the aforementioned Andy from Geek Salad, and he said... When I think of Secret of Nim, I think of a movie that really showed that another studio could compete with Disney. I saw this movie in the theatre right after I'd read the book Mrs Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, and I was awestruck by the animation and a story that was not geared for younger kids. However, this movie was such a promising start to the rise of Don Bluth that it is a bit sad to see few films of his that can hold a candle to Nim. Needless to say, thanks for covering this movie, and I'm fairly certain this is a wake-up call that I probably should show this one to my kids. And I can't come up with a good excuse for why I haven't. So thank you, Andy. And yes, you should show this to your kids. I would be very interested to hear what your kids think, actually. And Geek Salad are really good pals of this podcast. And Andy specifically has always been incredibly supportive of me and just of this podcast in general. Um, you know, we message each other quite a bit. Uh, and his family sent me a Christmas card, which was the cutest thing. And I think Geek Salad have been podcasting for 10 years. So they are one of the longest running podcasts that I'm aware of. Nobody does it better. Um, so make sure that you listen and subscribe to Geek Salad. I will put some links to their podcast in the show notes. Moving over to Twitter. Um, we don't have a great deal of comments this week uh, for The Secret of Nim, but I'm not entirely surprised about that because I feel like it's probably a little bit obscure, probably not the sort of thing that most people remember watching quite fondly perhaps um however we do have some comments over on twitter so at blc agnew said not only is the secret of nim a visually impressive and delightfully dark-edged animal fantasy adventure but don bluth's feature directorial debut is arguably one of the most important animated films of the past 40 years Aside from his studio providing internship for budding animators like Cartoon Saloon's Tom Moore, Bluth declared himself a direct competitor to Disney's, at the time, struggling feature animation division, and this rivalry led to Disney redoubling their animation efforts, resulting in the 90s Disney renaissance, a blueprint the studio uses to this day. It's not hyperbole to say that without The Secret of Nim, we likely wouldn't have The Little Mermaid, The Lion King, or Frozen. Also, as I said, it's really hecking good. At Golden Tales Geek said, A dark yet delightful animated adventure from Don Bluth. Plus, it introduced me to the legend that is Derek Jacobi. 
And finally, at Lanodanthian said, As well as nightmare fuel for an entire generation of children. When I think about it, I can't think of a single Don Bluth film that doesn't have nightmare fuel in it. Um, there are no comments from Instagram or Facebook this time, but like I said, I was fully expecting to not have that many comments for The Secret of Nim, but I'm really grateful for the ones that we got, so thank you so much. The Secret of Nim is darker than most animated movies, and then you look into it and you realise how dark. You know, we're talking government testing, animal cruelty, injecting animals to benefit humans, these supernatural elements. Jonathan Brisby gets eaten by a cat. Okay, it's off screen, but it's still horrific. Timmy having pneumonia, rats fighting each other with swords, a magician being crushed by a cinder block, moist children getting drowned potentially in a muddy swamp. It's no wonder this movie is the one most kids my age remember as being pure nightmare fuel. But there are glimpses of light in the darkness. The likes of Dom DeLuise, who gives this really jolly performance as Jeremy the Clumsy Crow who loves sparklies. Um, And you'll appreciate Mrs Brisby's gusto and drive against all of the odds. And I've always kind of said that kids don't need to be wrapped in cotton wool. There's nothing wrong with a bit of darkness in your animated movies. And it's the rare animated tale that will frighten kids and entrance adults. And Don Bluth deserves a hell of a lot more industry recognition for this beautifully animated slice of genius than he ever got. Don Bluth, we salute you. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Secret of Nim. And if you do like this episode or any other episode, uh, please take a moment to rate and review. Uh, ideally five stars, that would be marvellous. The other thing you can do is you can tell your friends about this podcast and get them to listen. That would be awesome. If you like this episode on The Secret of Nim, you might also like, I've mentioned it already, episode one, Titan AE. That is the continuation of the Don Bluth story. Maybe I'll go to some of his other works in future. I've got no plans to cover any of his other stuff. Maybe Anastasia uh, at a push, but we will see because there's always more room for animation on this podcast and there will probably be another animation season next year. So we will see, Uh, but I'm a big fan of Don Bluth. Um, I think his animation is beautiful. I think he's a genius. Um, So I would absolutely recommend watch Titan AE, obviously, before you listen to the episode. Uh, But it is an underrated gem. So uh, it's a lot better than people give it credit for. Uh, Episode 17, The Iron Giant, because again, it's super underrated. And I might just recommend it every single episode because the more people who watch The Iron Giant, the better your life will be. I compared this to Ghibli movies and I think it's most comparable to Princess Mononoke uh, which again deals with very adult themes and themes of the environment and what we're doing to animals how we're poisoning the world and Princess Mononoke covers very similar themes it's also similarly graphic as well I think Princess Mononoke is probably more graphic than this uh, but obviously there's a little bit of blood in this movie there's a little bit more blood in Princess Mononoke episode 63 Coraline And this is obviously, again, I mentioned Laika earlier. This is a Laika movie and it's very dark. It's a very similar dark, twisted fantasy story, beautifully animated, and it's just well worth your time. Coraline's one of my most popular episodes. Obviously, because it's Coraline and it's brilliant, but um, I would recommend Coraline to anyone. Um, And a bit of a curveball, but um, episode 74, Gremlins, because I mentioned it twice. Uh, There's a couple of links to Gremlins in this movie obviously with the Steven Spielberg association with Don Bluth going forward and also Jerry Goldsmith as well. <laughs> I listened to the episode on Gremlins. Give me feedback. Let me know what you thought. And the next episode, we're going to be returning to 2016. 
which I believe is one of the best years in modern cinema history for animation. So you have the likes of previous episodes of the podcast, Kubo and the Two Strings and Moana. There's many other examples that I am going to be covering in the future. But for next episode, we are going to Japan for a beautiful body swap fantasy romance story. You may not know Makoto Shinkai's movie, Your Name, but you should and you will. This movie, uh, Your Name, is from a little known Japanese studio called Comics Wave. And I implore you to find and watch Your Name. Bring tissues because you'll need them. Um, And then join me for episode 77, which is coming out next week and is on Your Name. Uh, You can follow me if you wish, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd, at Verbal Diorama. If you wish to support the show financially, you're under no obligation. But if you want to, uh, it's patreon.com slash verbal diorama. Tiers start at $2 or £2 a month and you get all sorts of different perks, including early episodes. So $5 tier patrons get episodes six days earlier than everyone else. And I'm looking into ways to give patrons even more perks. So if you would like to support the show, sign up on Patreon. And a massive thank you, as always, to the patrons of Verbal Diorama, Simon E., Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Matt, Trevor and Scott. And thanks to them for saving my mouse children from certain death. They all appreciate it very much. I have a merch store, teespring.com slash store slash verbal diorama. If you want to buy a t-shirt or a mug or whatever, then go there. <laughs> uh, if you want to email me general hellos, it's verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also fill out a contact form at verbaldiorama.com. You can also pop over to Film Stories. You can check out the magazine, uh, check out online articles, uh, a couple of which are written by me. Um, And finally, like Jeremy the Crow, Ah. (gasps) a sparkly. What? You're wearing a sparkly. Can I hold? Oh, please. Can I? Jeremy, listen. I need lots and lots of strings. Strings. To move the block. Move the block. Hey, I've got strings. I've been saving them. You do? Oh, sure. Red ones, blue ones, green, yellow. Pay attention. Go get all the string you can. Okay. (gasps) That'll take all day. Good. Get going. (laughs) I, uh, I just thought I'd mention in passing... I also love the sparklies and will do anything for the sparklies. Bye. Movie